This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. tuning into Power Athlete Radio. What does it take to be a spinal Jedi? This episode's guest has been called this, among many other names, in an attempt to convey his innate sense for human movement. Dr. Stuart McGill did not set out to work predominantly with athletes, but his research in spinal biomechanics led him to perfecting sports performance. Find out the intricate processes that Dr. McGill goes through to assess his athletes and his patients. Every detail from gait to posture to sound of the stride is analyzed, creating a comprehensive picture of that athlete's potential limiting factors. In a profession where pain is often the indicator when something is amiss, I asked Dr. McGill if this is ever an issue with athletes who have a high pain tolerance. Are they less likely to exhibit traditional signs of injury until it's too late? Listen as our discussion evolves from expressing regional and hereditary genetic traits to discovering the harsh truth. Some people's spines simply weren't built to play contact sports. Finding this out early on in life can not only enable you to optimize your success in other arenas of sport, but it might also save you a trip to Dr. McGill's office. Six foot five, 293 pound JJ Watt recently box jumped and with good form, I might add, 61 inches. For anyone that's trying to visualize that height, that is approximately 20 double-doubles from In-N-Out. That's 61 VHS copies of Bloodsport starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, or half the height of a 122-inch structure. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode 102 with Dr. Stuart McGill. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to the premier podcast for strength and conditioning Power Athlete Radio. <laughs> is that a question? <laughs> this is Denny. I'm here with John and Texan Luke. And uh, joining us today is Dr. Stuart McGill. He's the professor of spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo. Well, you know, uh, it'd be better for him just to kind of inter- introduce himself and uh, share with the listeners kind of his background a little bit. Well, good afternoon to you all. I uh, was always interested uh, in, in athletics, although not particularly a, a sport fan, and you'll know what I mean by that in a minute. But uh, as I finished up my master's degree, I was actually planning on doing a PhD in, in systems engineering, and I, I happened to, I was playing hockey for the university professor's hockey team where I was doing my master's and we played a game against uh, the University of Waterloo and uh, met uh, a professor named Bob Norman and uh, he he said well why don't you come over to my lab if you're considering a PhD and have a look around and he was just starting spine biomechanics so it was that fateful invitation that uh, I started uh, with my uh, PhD and then uh, I had a couple of other uh, curious turns, I suppose. Um, I, I've been working on uh, 
the science, which was measuring loads in, in people's spine tissues while they were doing uh, normal things and, and some fairly strenuous athletic uh, things. And uh, we also started a uh, laboratory uh, to fit the first one where we took cadaveric spines and then applied the loads that we measured in real people to them to see what kinds of injuries we would get. So we were honing in on what caused disc bulges and implant fractures and torn ligaments and, and those sorts of things. But then different medical groups would ask me to come out and speak. And uh, I did, and they would say, you know, that's interesting, the insight that you just gave us to a particular injury mechanism. Um, would you see a patient of ours that's uh, particularly uh, resistant to uh, our therapy, whatever that therapy was? And I said, well, no, I don't really see patients. And they said, well, you know, the, don't, don't worry about it. We'll be there with you. Would you, would you see this patient? So it just started that way, um, seeing different patients, and then slowly, uh, the athletic world uh, started to come by asking would I see some uh, of their uh, resistive athletes and uh, that was uh, oh, probably 30 years ago and over the, the last 30 years it's been this wonderful synergy between uh, having the uh, caseload of, of difficult back patients. Uh, some of them have been uh, Many of them have been very dominant athletes in their sport. And uh, coupling that with the uh, scientific work to try and understand the mechanisms of what caused their injuries in the first place and uh, what was the magic elixir in turning around their uh, therapeutic approaches to, first of all, get them out of pain, and then number two, restore their uh, athletic potential. So th I guess that's in a, in a nutshell. It's uh, <laughs> kind of a, been a very strange uh, journey. Did you did you ever think that you would be working specifically with athletes? I mean, I'm sure you work with a, a much larger demographic as well. But uh, was it something that you had aspired to based on your athletic background? No, not at all. Uh, it was just dumb luck. And uh, truth be known, I've never asked in my life to see a patient or give a lecture or do an interview like we're doing now. <laughs> people have asked me, and it, it just uh, unfolded, and there was no direction, uh, maybe divine direction, but certainly nothing on my part. <laughs> yeah, well, you're in cer certainly in high demand. So, I mean, we, we definitely appreciate you taking the time to uh, make it on the podcast. So let's let's get in a little bit to the some topics of discussion for today. Um, when you when you have someone come to you and it's whether it's your first time meeting them or they're coming to you with some pre-existing injuries or like you said they're sort of resistant to um, more typical treatments, uh, how do you start in assessing them? What's what's kind of the first process to to diagnosing them from your your perspective? Right. Well, uh, first of all, in order for me to see someone, they've already uh, will have needed to see probably a dozen different clinicians of various sorts. They might be an orthopod or a neurologist or a surgeon or a shrink or a uh, physical therapist or a chiropractor or what have you, and um, they failed those uh, approaches. So I'm getting the more challenging cases. The assessment starts the second I lay eyes on them. So if they're in the waiting area, 
I, I never have someone bring the patient in. I always walk down and from a distance I observe how they're sitting and then when I greet them, how do they uh, get out of the chair and I'm looking for things like uh, are they hamstring dominant, gluteal dominant, what are, what are the expressions of pain that I see immediately. And then as they walk back to my office, I'm, I'm listening for footfall, which gives away different nerve traps, um, uh, watching asymmetries in their gait pattern, uh, how they're carrying their backpack or, or suitcase or whatever it happens to be. And then they sit down in my office and we start a, a verbal interview. And uh, I just ask them some ground-breaking uh, questions to get them a bit comfortable, but I'm observing their behavior all the time. Um, even how they move their hands when they're expressing their pain are, are dead giveaways for whether their hands follow circular movements over their body or they clench a fist showing me very uh, boring types of pain. Um, and then um, I ask them very specific questions. One might be, for example, uh, when they roll over in bed, do they ever get a sharp pain? And that, for example, would be a prime indicator of spine instability. Um, I ask them what activities make their pain better or worse. Um, uh, I ask them about their current training program. It may not be that they are doing poorly selected exercises. It might be just a, pro uh, a programming issue. Maybe their volume is not appropriate or uh, maybe their recovery uh, component isn't uh, uh, suitable. Um, so I, I get a, a general uh, impression. Uh, then I say, all right, we're going to go downstairs to the assessment room. And I watch how they bend over to pick up their bags and their uh, x-rays or CT images or whatever they happen to come with. And then we walk down the stairs. Uh, I don't uh, open the door for them. I watch how they push and pull with those patterns. Then we go into the assessment room and we start uh, pain provocation. So this will sound strange to some of your listeners, but I specifically uh, use different motions, postures, loads to increase their pain. So I understand very precisely what their pain triggers are, whether it's a, a spine posture, whether it's only occurring under certain loads, and we go into shear modes, compressive modes, bending modes, etc. Uh, and then once I've under or defined the specific pain triggers, I start working on the opposite to see where the leeway is for me to start patterns of movement uh, that do not trigger pain. Can we engineer a way around that? Um, now, as you can imagine, I, I get people who, who will show up in a wheelchair, very disabled, so their provocative testing will be very different from the champion uh, power lifter or NFL offensive tackle or UFC athlete who comes in and says, I only get, well, here's an example. I, I had a, uh, a discus thrower, not from either of our countries, but they'd flown in from another country, and I couldn't get any pain provoked in them, and I was becoming a little bit frustrated, and I said to them, well, tell me what causes your pain. Show me. And so they mimicked the discus throwing motion. Well, it hurts when I rotate and, and drop my right hand and shoulder back this way. And, 
And then I, I said right away, well, how many times do you throw a discus every day? And they said, well, about 100 times. And I said, I think I know what's causing your back pain. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in that particular case, I had to work very hard, but it was so stupid in the end as to what their pain mechanism was. And I said, look, you don't become the best discus thrower in the world by throwing 100 times a day. You, you develop your athleticism first, and then you express your athleticism through the throw. But let's just throw when you're throwing perfectly to get the timing down and, and the nuance of the athleticism. But we've got an awful lot of work to do. You, in other words, you will not build your athleticism to become a discus thrower by throwing the discus 100 times a day and neglecting the foundation uh, that's required underneath. Um, anyway, that so 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 job one is to really understand their pain and get rid of that. There's too many athletes. Well, every athlete comes in and they failed because they didn't address their pain. They went right back to traditional ideas. Oh, I have to get stronger to get rid of my pain or whatever. But uh, so we take them right back to get rid of their pain. Then we morph the. Uh, assessment into what do you need to perform your sport then we assess them for whatever those parameters are and then we set up a training program that trains the difference hmm. so uh, dr. McGill this is Luke with power athlete um, I'm the resident expert on bad television shows and movies was is it fair to say that you are the Sherlock Holmes of uh, spinal conditions I mean, everything from how maybe a guy's wearing a wristwatch or his shoes are tied can indicate what's going on with them. I mean, it sounds like it's I, pretty I, I, usually I, absolutely, yeah, I've been called all kinds of names, <laughs> sort of a, a Jedi or what, whatever. There was, um, we, I had a nice session last year with Gray Cook down at Stanford and, and one of the write-ups afterwards, uh, I think, Used the word Jedi Master of Assessment because uh, that's quite the compliment. I, I assessed a, a fellow on stage, and uh, uh, he had gone through you know traditional quasi-static movement assessments. And then I said, I want to see you pull a rope hand over hand. And as soon as he started pulling the rope, I put my hand on his low back, and I felt an antalgia at L4, which is a slightly a slight displacement of the L4 vertebra, which usually indicates a disc bulge. And I said to him right away, you, you, you can train for about two months and then your back breaks down. Is that correct? He said, yes. And I said, you've got a disc bulge on the right-hand side at L4, haven't you? And he said, yes. <laughs> and this was, uh, you know, he was mic'd up in front of the audience. So, and then people came to me afterwards and they were mystified. How did you know all of this stuff? And I said, well, you could see it a mile away from the <laughs> And uh, the, the deficits of the muscles being served by uh, L4 on that side. And I got him to pull the rope hand over hand. And after about 10 cycles, with a bit of fatigue, he froze his hips and overused his back. So I knew right away the mechanism was as soon as he got tired, he didn't have the movement discipline to maintain form. And he just blew his back. So anyway, uh, yeah, you can... These things are, are really evident to a trained eye. 
Um, I have a question. When you have when you have athletes coming in, um, do you ever have maybe youth athletes come in with their parents? And then do you see some hereditary, maybe not hereditary, but movement patterns that have been learned over seeing you know the previous generation move and function? And so, do you ever kind of take that into account as to how someone moves, whether it's improperly or athletic or um, you know anywhere in between? Oh, what a beautiful question. That's really insightful. Yes, the answer is absolutely yes to both. Let's take the anatomical question uh, right off the bat. You know, I'm asked so often about deep squats and should we be doing deep squats and what about the butt wink at the bottom and all of that. And, I, and my first question is, well, who were your parents? And if the athlete has deep hip sockets, um, they inherited those from their parents. And I'll, I'll just take you through a little bit of a regional survey across Europe. Let's look at orthopedic disease of the hip. Um, the highest rate of hip dysplasia in the world is in Poland. That's because the hip sockets genetically are very shallow. So um, in, in a baby, the hips become dysplastic and, and they, they fall out of their socket. So they have special exercises and diapers and whatnot, but that's the highest rate. Now, where is the epicenter of uh, Olympic lifters from? It's from Bulgaria, Poland, and Western Russia, which is the Ukraine. In other words, the dysplastic hip is beautifully suited for the deep squat with very, very little stress uh, in it. Now, if let's take the polar opposite that and move west through Europe. Let's go far west to the Celtic nations. They have the highest rate of anterior femoral impingement syndrome. In other words, they have the deepest hip sockets as we go through Europe. Now, if you take that same person and ask them to do a deep squat, you'll find that A, they can't go very deep before the spine has to flex. Um, and or they Im impinge the hip. So th that's very much a function of their parents. So part of the assessment is what type of anatomical structure do they have in their pelvis and their spine. But that's just one uh, specific example. So um, very much uh, it's that. Now I, I, then I look at leverages. Let, let's take two athletes and let's do the squat example again. Let's take a seven foot tall NBA center from the athlete. They will never pass an FMS deep squat test because the knees have to come way ahead of the uh, feet, non-parallel to the torso because their length of their body is in the legs. Now, when we watch them jump, um, the vertical standing uh, jump is probably not that impressive, but you take two steps, hinge off one foot, and fly through the air from the top of the key and dunk a basketball. That is a hip-dominant uh, jump. In other words, the power came from the hip exploding, propelling a stone, which is a stiffened core. Now let's take a six foot nine volleyball power hitter uh, at the front line. They have a beautiful standing vertical jump, but they are knee jumpers. You'll find their sitting height will be much taller. They're mm -hmm. shorter in the leg, even though their total height is tall and yet they are knee jumpers and they will do very well on a squat program. So there's just another example of anatomy, heredity, uh, determining A, how they should train, B, how they express their athleticism, and what works for one athlete will be totally counterproductive to the other one.
Doc, so what you're saying is that there's actually a genetic pre-selection for athletic uh, prowess, that an athlete that obviously has a longer torso, shorter uh, leg is obviously going to be probably a better vertical jumper opposed from uh, what you're talking about with like a longer type basketball player with a longer leg, which would obviously be a more uh, hip dominant jump. So absolutely, without question. What you're saying is uh, is what we've been actually preaching for years that you know you don't always select the sport; the sport actually selects you many times, and you oh. tend to excel at. Uh, I, I know you guys are going to be bummed out about Clean this. Clean your strengths. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, like once you start talking, like once you start going and ratcheting up that uh, that level of athletic achievement, I mean, once you get out of like the high school and start getting college professional, you get to the pinnacle. You're going to notice that like certain body types fit within certain uh, successes within that sport. It's pretty, it's pretty apparent to see it. Yeah. Oh, ab absolutely. There was a there's a book that just came out on uh, developing the. Uh, uh, a young athlete, and they asked me would I write the weightlifting chapter. And I think that was my opening sentence. If you want to be an Olympic lifter, you know, lots of kids can play basketball or find a place on the football team um, and, and train hard and be reasonably proficient. But if you take Olympic lifting, absolutely the sport finds you. Dr. McGill, what, what's the book that you're working uh, it, it was a book, it was edited by Craig Liebenson. And I'm remiss. I don't recall the exact title. It was something about de developing the junior athlete. But uh, he asked many different people to contribute chapters. I know one was on the baseball pitcher uh, and uh, whatnot. But anyway, as I said, that was m m my opening line for the way developing the junior weightlifter. Going back to one of the uh, lines you said in kind of your, your opening spiel, it was saying that uh, – let the shot putter display and develop his athleticism, not improving his skill by throwing 100 discs a day. I'm curious if you ever had that conversation with a sport coach who just said drill, 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 and not necessarily go to the athletic side. Oh, many times. That, that's a weekly conversation. Do you have a certain way of handling that that maybe our, our athletic coaches and strength and conditioning coaches could, could learn from? Uh, boy, I, I would have to say that that would be very specific to the uh, conversation. Um, it, if it was uh, very, uh, if they were listening to me, uh, that wouldn't be a hard sell. If they were um, very dogmatic and uh, maybe a little bit adversarial, uh, it, 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 it might be more difficult. But, uh, I mean, in, in my particular situation, I'm usually brought in once a problem has emerged. So you might have, say, an NCAA football team where 40% of the players are uh, on the uh, ha have back pain issues to the point that they can't train to play American football. Um, so that coach is, as, or someone, the athletic director or the university president or whoever it is, has brought me in to, to give an opinion on why that is the case. So usually they're, they're you know, I just have to show them, look, here's, here's your, your programming error. Um, or they may have uh, listened to another uh, guru expert, whoever that person might be, and they went overboard. Uh, look, let me give you an example. You, you, I'm sure you're familiar over the last few years, there's been this discussion, oh, 
double leg or double support squats are bad. Therefore, we should have our athletes doing more one-legged squats. Well, you can imagine some coach would get that and, and, and not realize that there's a biological volume to, to all of these things, and they'll have their team doing Bulgarian split squats with an 80-pound dumbbell in each hand. Well, if you do a split squat, if, you're, if your left leg is the one that's split behind you, your pelvis mutates, meaning that your right iliac crest mutates forward and the left one mutates back. And then when you split the squat, you get a mutation or a torsional stress through the pelvis the other way. Well, if you keep doing that, a little bit is good. But as soon as you cross the line, that stress strain reversal in the pelvis breaks open the sacroiliac joints. Now you've got a bunch of players with loose pelvic rings and sacroiliac pain. So they run down the field cut and they're, they're hindered with back pain. So, I mean, there's an example of uh, someone who, is, who has violated that. Um, if I'm brought in, I'll say, well, look, there's your mechanism. And they go, oh, yeah, you're right. We started that uh, six months ago. Now we've created another problem. So it's not a hard sell to, to sell that to them. Yeah, and it's interesting. It, it sounds like you have a really rational um, sort of approach because so many people want to say that the athlete maybe was just a lemon in that situation. This is just somebody who couldn't hack it, right? Or they had some sort of like pre-existing issue where, you know, biomechanically they weren't sound for whatever the programming required. But what you're saying is most of the time it comes down to, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like it comes down to a lot of irresponsible programming and particularly in with regard to volume and, and implementation, right? Um, I, I, I certainly that's true some of the time. I don't know if it's true all the time because if we go back to our previous conversation, we all have inherent gifts and what is a gift in one regard is also a great disadvantage in another. So uh, it may just be that that person isn't designed to run a marathon or to right. Uh, be competitive on a bike or to be competitive in the UFC or whatever it happens we'll, to be. Uh, we'll you know, look, if, if, if just, sorry, uh, if I can just say this. If, if um, you, you don't believe in athleticism, just look at different breeds of dogs because that's what we are. We're a bunch of different breeds of dogs and you can't take St. Bernard who is really good at carrying heavy loads to the Greyhound track and expect him to win. No, I, I, Doc, I couldn't agree with you more. I, um, the, over the years, I uh, uh, played college and uh, uh, played football at UC Berkeley, and then I went on and played 10 years in the NFL. And as an NFL player, and more importantly, and even thinking back to college, which was kind of an interesting deal in that there was a larger pool of guys brought in, and uh, everybody was thrown into the same training program, and it was amazing to see certain guys just come apart at the seams and get injured and have these hellacious injuries. Uh, basically doing the exact same program that I was doing that I never had. Uh, I ended up with a knee injury, and, uh, you know, other guys ended up with back injuries and shoulder injuries, and some guys, you know, would have surgery, and then all of a sudden they were fine, they came back, and other guys could never come back. And um, what I I've kind of theorized is that certain people are genetically uh, predisposed to handling volume and intensity much better than others. I knew guys that lifted weights two days a week and got strong, and when they moved it to four days a week, got weaker. I knew other guys, you know, like myself, the more I trained, the stronger I got. The more I did, the better I got. But I believe that there's like almost like an inherent, um, you know, 
everybody everybody's cup is very very different, and you know some people can handle more, other people have a smaller cup. And the problem is, is in a one-size-fits-all approach, it's almost next to impossible to be able to gauge that because they're almost just teaching to what you know the coach's ego or different people have. And over the years, I watched guys just literally implode from some things that I just thought were very, very basic. Well, uh, you agree with me, and I absolutely agree with you. You know, what's very difficult for me is when I'm brought into a team situation and they say, well, can you lead this? And I say, well, yes, I can. And then I start, and then I have to do a quick little breakout. Look, you three guys right there, you shouldn't be doing this. You should not be squatting that way. Look, you're going to push a sled, and here's why you're going to push a sled, and you are going to do some suitcase carries, and you're going to, because you've got no frontal plane strength, you can squat 800 pounds, but you cannot run down the field, plant, and turn on a dime and go in another direction without your spine bending and leaking energy. So you need frontal planes, you know, core strength. You do not need any more extensor strength out of your squat or power cleans or whatever you're doing. And, uh, yeah, so then we just end up with these massive breakouts all the time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, everyone it's, as an individual. Well, I mean, but, but we are unique individuals, and everybody is, uh, you know, has a different set of movement patterns that they're going to default to. Uh, the thing uh, which was always interesting for me is how many guys I saw uh, end up with some really, really terrible back injuries. And for me, I never had any back injuries. I mean, obviously, I had some knee stuff, but um, never really suffered from any back injury. And I remember seeing guys go through some, just some really horrific deals. And when they asked me about it, I was like, I don't know why my back didn't come apart at the seams. I mean, I definitely trained harder, lifted more weights, and trained at a higher level. But for some reason, never had the same injuries. So it was always pretty fascinating to me, and I believe that there's a 100% uh, luck, but also a, a massive genetic adaptation, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, and I it, honestly, it goes back to I think it's all genetics. It's it's maybe and when you said you know what part of the world do you come from? I mean, that kind of lit a a light bulb for me thinking about. Um, body types. You know, body types, but also, you know, certain, you know, uh, you know. Just lineages. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's like um, I, I, I literally just got a call from my mom yesterday who's in her mid-70s, went to the doctor because her knee had been bothering her, and um, she this is her uh, first real trip to the doctor, takes no medications, never had surgery, has nothing wrong with her, and at 77 years old, might have torn some cartilage in her knee and wanted to know what she should do, and the doctor MRI'd her, and she has no arthritis and no problems. And the doctor was like, this isn't a knee of a 77-year-old woman. My mom's like, I've never had any problems. So I was kind of like, as I, as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, man, I must have some pretty decent genetics to have been able to, to get this far, you know. Yeah. And also, my mom is Canadian, so uh, I, every time I hear you say about, I kind of <laughs> laugh a little. He's like a boob. So, yeah, my, my, my mom's from Calgary. Uh, so. Yeah, I've, I've got a son who lives in the States, and I get corrected all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So, Doc, I know that you have um, some um, opinions and, and pretty, I guess, uh, strict viewpoints on things with, that require, like, th thoracic flexion extension. Um, do you want to talk about some myths out there uh, that are related to flexion extension exercises and, you know, kind of where you stand on that and how it tends to be somewhat, um, I guess, controversial, I guess, in, in this day and age? Um, I, I just need a clarification on that, Callie. Are we talking sure. about spine flexion and extension exercises? Yes. Well, you know, the answer to any question like that, I'm not trying to evade the question, but the answer is it depends. Sure, yeah. Talking about? So, you know, we, we just heard a wonderful 
a documentary about a football player who, who never had had a back issue. So I would probably uh, say in that particular case, where's the problem? There was right. a back problem. But if we take someone else who, if we sit them on a stool and have them sit upright and then grab the seat pan of the stool and pull up, and if they say, no, hey, I don't have any, any pain, I say, good, now slouch down and pull up on the chair again and say, oh, whoa, wait a second, I've got pain radiating down my leg and, and, and whatnot. Now I'm going to say, you know what, there is uh, a situation where I think we should be avoiding flexion, the pain trigger in that person, teach them to hip hinge, and uh, there we go. And, you know, that might be a jujitsu player in the UFC. And they say, well, I have to train spine flexion. And I say, well, hold on. Uh, you are so sensitized right now when you flex your spine that you, you cannot train. You, in fact, no one in your gym can, can even make the UFC right now, can they? And they go, uh, well, uh, no. So, you know, I say, well, what are you telling me about uh, you have to uh, continue with the injury mechanism? And they say, well, yeah, well, you know, I, I still have to do my thousand sit-ups a day, and, and <laughs> that, that's and I've got to push my hands flat, palms to the floor every morning for five minutes because that's the way our gym trains. And I say, well, good. That's why you don't have anyone competing anymore. So what we're going to do is completely avoid the pain triggers. We're going to allow your system to become less sensitive and you do that by avoiding it so you know if I have a sore thumb because I hit my thumb with a hammer every day I just lightly touch my thumb and I'll scream and I cannot keep hitting my thumb and expecting it to get more resilient to the hammer I have to stop the hammer let it become pain-free and then begin training all over again so that's how we would deal with that flexion issue or compression issue shear injury or, or whatever it happens to be. Identify the pain trigger sensitivity. Take it away. Let the sensitivity reduce. Then the athlete now has a whole uh, enlarged volume of tolerable uh, training available to them and we design a program now that's progressive and, and slowly come back and perhaps tickle the dragon's tail. But, you know, I've got two or three guys right now that I've consulted with in the UFC who have finished in terms of uh, and uh, we avoided it and say, look, you keep that for the octagon and uh, that way you'll be able to train, get in uh, uh, sufficient uh, physical condition to compete, but you're going to have to keep that in the octagon, and uh, if you train too much of it outside, you will be crippled once again. So, you know, that's that's the deal that you have to make. I have, I have sort of a loaded question for you. Um, if if pain is the main indicator, I mean, we already referenced how uh, some people's pain tolerance is different based on what sport they're coming from or just in general, like past experiences. Um, and then there might even be some like nervous system or, um, you know, neurological things that cause them to interpret pain differently and then convey that. But what are some other, are there, are there other indicators of, um, you know, whether a movement pattern or something should be, you know, s s taken off of a program or if it's creating poor movement. I mean, is is pain the main and only um, way to diagnose these things? Well, in, in my 
particular world, which is a specialist's world, I would say the answer is yes. Pain is number one. But uh, can can I add a bit more to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> of course you can. Okay. Well, if I can add a little bit more, pain or certain joint stresses cause certain syndromes that inhibit certain muscles and facilitate others. Right. So let's take, um, well this has been well studied in knee pain, but we, we did the first study on hip pain not too long ago where we uh, had people who were going in for therapeutic arthrograms. So these are people who are fairly functional like firefighters and police officers and, and different athletes and the uh, surgeon goes in and pressurizes the hip capsule to the point where it's starting to burst just a little bit to free up the movement. Well, while they do this procedure, we put electrodes over the muscles and have them do some, some functional moves to see how their brain is activating certain muscles. So you may have heard, if, you, if you've known our, our work before, about gluteal amnesia. So if you have a history of back pain or, or uh, hip pain or to get specific to your question, there may not even be pain, but there certainly is uh, a sensitivity there and a flawed movement pattern. Mm -hmm. The gluteals become neurologically inhibited, so the athlete is now dependent upon their hamstrings. Well, if you continue to extend your, your hip with your hamstrings, the line of action drives the femoral head forward in the acetabulum, causing uh, anterior impingement further causing more damage to the joint. Whereas if you can reprogram the brain to reintegrate the gluteals into that hip extensor pattern, the gluteals have a line of action that pulls the femoral head posteriorly out of anterior impingement. So you get your glutes back and it also salvages the hip joint. So there's just an example of, of an inhibition pattern. An example of a facilitation pattern would be with, with back pain that facilitates um, the psoas muscle. Not the iliopsoas, but the psoas specifically. And if you can target the psoas through a very targeted uh, stretching uh, release program, it becomes very effective in, in uh, releasing the uh, neural overdrive to that muscle. So there's just a couple of examples to take your question beyond yeah. pain. No, that's fantastic. You know, why do we have to work so damn hard to get our bodies to do what they should just normally do? Are we, to, or are we just totally spinning this in a way that we're like, okay, this is purely performance-driven, and we are going to milk well, every aspect of human movement no, out of this? No, think, think about it like this. If uh, for most people that never do anything, like don't play sports or whatever, they uh, they end up with almost as high like a high rate as people that do play sports. I mean, I've, I've met people that have never done any physical training that have had two hip replacements. So it's almost like it's crazy. You know, it, 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 it's I, like I believe that for a lot of things, movement patterns are set at such a young age, and from those movement patterns, we develop problems, we develop deficiencies. And I remember years ago there was a pretty cool. And I've told you guys this. There was a cool study we saw where children learn their movement patterns by watching their parents. And they, they filmed a bunch of children that have been raised by their paternal grandparents and then notice that the kids gate. So what I believe is, uh, you know, improper movement patterns by just having really crappy parents that are showing bad movements maybe contrib uh, contributes to it. But, um, you know, there's definitely some real factors in this stuff. And I'm sure 
doctors seen people come through his door that have said, I have this terrible pain, this, and they've never done anything physical. I'm sure he's met other high-level athletes that have zero pain. Uh, affirmative to all of that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you've got a, a parent who doesn't care about posture and they slouch and then the kid slouches, what hope does the kid have? Yeah. And, uh, I can also tell you about learned behaviors as well. Um, it, it's so interesting when I come to, you're in Newport Beach? Yes, sir. Yes. When, when I see the number of people who slop along in sandals or flip-flops and they lock their knees out at, at, with, the eight, with each um, stance phase of mm -hmm. the gait cycle and they throw their knees forward and they have their head down looking at their blackberry or whatever the blueberry or whatever the hell those things are called and they have such a learned gait pattern uh, that just steals their athleticism and appearance <laughs> um, and then uh, you know, I, I, if you take a group, we, we, say we're doing a, 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 some work with a, a group of police officers and they start walking and their right hands swing out laterally when they're walking down the street and, and, and you wonder why on earth are they walking like a penguin that way? Well, when you figure it out, that's the only way they can walk with their duty belt on. Yeah. So they then translate that learned behavior um, to uh, the, the rest of their day. Now, you know, what is going on with young kids is, is just horrifying. The amount of time they sit in a chair and then their, their leisure time is in front of at the computer and then you wonder why they have chronically shortened muscles. They're starting to present like CP uh, afflicted children. You know, Doc, I've, I've heard you say before um, that most people will like sit if they have back pain, um, they'll sit into it, you know, like or if there's some sort of a a, a discomfort that they feel, maybe the way they walk or um, just stand um, w without moving, or if they go to sit down, like they they move into their pain. Um, is do you think that kind of goes along with what you're saying about like learned? Uh, bad movement patterns that are learned? Well, yeah, you're precisely right. That's why I said earlier, that goes along with that Sherlock Holmes uh, analogy. People sit in their pain. So if you have a person who doesn't tolerate sitting slouched or flexion causes their pain, they sit all curled up in a ball with their knees up to their chest. A person who is extension intolerant, they sit bolt upright and then get out of the chair with this very uh, exaggerated spine extended posture. It's 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 it just is so counter to what uh, would be common sense. But they continue to hammer their back, so to speak, with these chronic patterns that are causing their pain. And they you'd think they would figure it out, but they for some reason they don't. I have a quick question kind of uh, along the lines of learned movement patterns and then trained movement patterns and overtrained. So a, a sagittal plane sport like powerlifting or Olympic lifting, do you see any problems or them coming to you because they do not have rotation or lateral flexion and extension in their training? Absolutely. There are uh, football programs in the U.S. that base their strength program around Olympic and power lifts. So they're very good at uh, the triple extension, as it's called, um, uh, with both feet on the ground. 
But now you take a 340-pound offensive tackle who, when they, when they stand on one leg and have to propel an opponent out of the way with a one-leg thrust as they're getting their other leg out in front of them in a swing phase, they fall apart. Their pelvis leans to the side, they leak energy through their back, and they get either mowed down by uh, the other player who gets better leverage on them, or they end up hurting their back. And if they would expand their strength training training program away from the power uh, moves and the Olympic moves to do things uh, so they create frontal plane strength or one-legged strength, and the best way to do that or the way we start dealing with it is usually through one-armed carries. We start with a suitcase carry, and then to balance the small intrinsic muscles with the larger ones, we'll do a bottoms-up kettlebell carry. Either the, the, the kettlebell is racked in front of their face, if you know what I mean, uh, stiffened through the shoulder and core, uh, but it's carried uh, just in front of their shoulder, or they may press it overhead and carry it, but they've got to carry it bottoms up. So there is the skill component of uh, balancing intrinsic and then extrinsic muscles, and now let's really drive home some frontal plane strength and power with the uh, suitcase carry. So this goes long before farmers walk, by the way. But there would be an example of a situation where they are deficit in a particular directionality to their strength and power, um, an example of how it's causing them performance deficits and injury risk in a sport, and then how we might uh, deal in addressing it. Do you, um, do you think that that like an overuse of say like the, the frontal plane movement, the sagittal plane, um, constant pulling um, kind of goes along with, uh, I, I came across a video of you when you were uh, given like an opinion on saying like the sit-up. Uh, we were talking earlier about the UFC and you were talking about that guy who does thousands of sit-ups. And uh, in this particular case, you were demonstrating how doing a sit-up is almost just like working a disc out of like your lumbar area, um, the lower part of your spine, you know? So now I'm thinking like if, I, if I'm constantly triple extending and overextending my spine that way, is that kind of working that movement in the reverse? Or is there uh, any kind of well, similarity yeah, there? Yes and no. Um, boy, this is a great question at this stage of this uh, – little session because we can attack it from all of the perspectives that we've discussed. We started talking about anatomy. Well, um, I'll, uh, let, let's just go back to an anatomical consideration on this. Um, if you have a thick spine, so say you're a middle linebacker in the NFL, by definition you will not have a slim spine. Um, evolution would have taken you out of the gene pool. You have to have a fairly thick compressive load-bearing spine to last in that position. Um, now, if you take a thick tree branch and bend it, it will break with about one degree of bend or even less because the thicker the tube that you're bending, the higher the stress. Now, if you have a thin willow branch, you can bend it back and forth. Stress doesn't develop and uh, there's no issue. However, that slender rod will never play in the NFL. So what I've just 
given you now is a contrast between the archetypical golfer's spine, which is slender and has lots of motion and, while it's moving, much less stress, versus a middle linebacker in the NFL who will have a thick spine um, and much higher stress with an equivalent amount of bend. So if the, if the linebacker trained doing lots of sit-ups, they will end up with the disc delamination that we're talking about and into extension. Um, they will probably be at a much greater risk of a facet joint uh, overload, whereas the slender spine will get away with it, no issue. Um, they can do yoga, they can bend, uh, but don't get them to lift the heavy loads or take the impacts that the uh, middle linebacker will do. So do you see how the answer is? It depends. Um, it depends on the person and what they're built for. And if we can take all of that into consideration, we'll probably end up with a better uh, program and uh, advice for that individual. Is that why they did so much scoliosis testing in middle school? Because they were really just trying to figure out what sport we were going to end up playing? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I mean, the, I'm, uh, I'm kidding. Well, no, I, I, I actually have the, uh, a good golfer. Uh, nah, he's, no. He does, not, he does no. not have a slender spine. Well, Can you drive that ball? Well, uh, actually, uh, when I got in the NFL, they hooked us up with like a set of clubs. And so I had these really cool clubs. I decided I was going to go out and become a golfer. And so I spent the whole off season, three days of the golf course with a pro, played pretty well. I actually shot pretty decent to shoot in like the 90s. And then I went back and played another season, and I came back, and I remember like that first week out, I was I got my clubs, I went out, and I shot like a 150, <laughs> and I, I broke like three clubs on the field, and I literally put them in the bag, and I never played them again. But um, uh, I actually that uh, scoliosis test about saved my life. I had a, a terrible deal as a kid. Like the cool kids always wore a backpack on one shoulder, like Luke Summers over here. I was well, I used to wear, when I was a kid, I used to wear my backpack on one shoulder, and I shrugged my shoulder up, my right shoulder, and I went into the scoliosis test, and I had an overdeveloped trap on my right side. So they thought I, they called my mom and said, actually, they thought I had scoliosis, and uh, we had to go to the doctor, and the doctor's like, no, I think he just has an overdeveloped trap. And so uh, they made me do a whole bunch of shrugs, and like that was one of the things when I got into lifting weights. I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta fix this trap. Oh, I hijacked this. So very that was, I, I'm telling you, uh, whenever people are like, oh, that was so stupid, I'm like, actually, it, thank God, or I would have had looked like Quasimodo with a big ass shoulder. It's inter it's interesting, Doc, what you say about people with like quote unquote like slender spines, because you think about the more petite framed people, not necessarily. I like you, no, I'm just thinking about women in general and why mm -hmm. they're. Why they're sort of like they're they're more prone to be able to like do rotational movements and have yes. flexibility and like do do bridges and gymnastics. Type but they're also at higher risk for ACL. Doc, we did a bunch of ACL research, and the number one mechanism for injury was lack of trunk control, just trunk dominance. So I I found that very interesting, and I think that is something definitely there's a connection there. What you were talking about, the spine thickness. Don't don't make this don't make this about us. All right, like we have control over. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. <clears throat> so, Jocks. Or I'm sorry, Kelly. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say you can you can settle this this battle of the sexes right now, Doc, and just tell us who who has a healthier spine on average. Tex or Kelly. <laughs> oh, linebacker spine, baby. Yeah, no, I well, I I can't answer that question, but uh, absolutely, really? the, uh, the 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 female spine being more slender 
has uh, the ability to move more with less stress. Yeah. Uh, That's what we do. To go back to that previous example, you won't find if if golf was about strength, every middle linebacker would be hitting a, a good long ball, but you won't find a linebacker who can hit a competitive long ball. It's a shame. They're too, they're too strong and they're too thick. I, I know. I know what that means. I know what that's all about. <laughs> I wanted to see, uh, or I wanted to ask John, um, like in the Field Strong program, I don't think I've ever seen you program like sit-ups, um, you know, maybe more of like a crunching type of a movement, like all oh, the get-up sit-up. Yeah, I mean, we. Oh, okay. yeah. But I, yeah. mean, I wouldn't call that like the crunching. No, I, I uh, years ago I, I thought the uh, sit-ups were not only stupid, but they were just kind of useless. And um, everybody that I knew that when we ever did sit-ups as a group, they always complained of back uh, injury. The other thing which I couldn't figure out is, uh, you know, like think about like trunk stability. You know, normally you're in like a good posture and position, and like I, I was always more focused on lifting weights in terms of way to challenge good posture and position. And I thought that a lot of that really rounded and a lot of the movements that you did at like the, the top of the crunch. And then when people come down, they usually overextend and hyperextend their back. And then they kind of go from flexion to extension. I just thought it was uh, just a, a terrible movement. And so for me, like my thing with like kind of like midline stability, if you want to call it, was always about kind of challenging that. So we always used, you know, uh, uh, you know, like lateral flexion or extension and just some other things. But our uh, most of the things that I found too – um, I trained much better when I was actually standing doing any type of trunk work. So a lot of like kind of rotational movements you guys will see, like the rotational uh, ball slams, ball throws. Um, the only one that I really ever do laying down was uh, the evil wheels. So I, I always liked the Olibar evil wheel. It was always good for me. Some Russian but, uh, twists. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of Russian twist, but for me, a lot of the rotation stuff goes back to me as an offensive lineman. I mean, even though we start with a guy in front of me, as soon as I take a step, the first place he wants to do is get on my outside. He wants to get on the shoulder, and he wants to try to turn my body. So the ability for me to be able to set back, keep my feet square in a good position, and then use my trunk and use that rotation was actually my bread and butter. So I actually trained specific for that, and I think uh, that you know focus and training at a young age might have prevented maybe a lot of the back injury stuff that I did. So, I mean, you see we'll do, like, teapots, um, you know, single leg teapots, um, and just a lot of kind of unilateral and um, um, kind of different movements. But in terms of a conventional crunch, uh, I thought they were ridiculous and we don't do them. So, sounds like it sounds like I was on to something, huh, Doc? Oh, I, I think so. You know, uh, I, I – some people don't like the opinions I have on sit-ups, but uh, you know those opinions didn't come from uh, doing a study on them. They came from uh, taking cadaveric spines through the sit-up motion and watching the discs delaminate. Then we uh, followed athletes who who did that type of training, and and did they actually cause the same delamination? The answer was yes. Then the U.S. military who has a standard fitness test every year, which comprised of speed sit-ups, uh, realized that they were damaging the backs of their soldiers and their sailors. So they did a study uh, down in Texas where they had um, a one group in basic training who never did a sit-up, but they did planks and stir the pot and some of the exercises you were talking about, never did a sit-up, 
versus the traditionally trained boot camp uh, candidates who did do sit-ups, and then they both competed in the speed sit-up test at the end. And I, I guess you can you'll you'll guess where this story is going. The ones who didn't train sit-ups did much better on the sit-up test when they had to do it. So in other words, they, they, they developed much greater athleticism without any risk potential. So, you know, um, and then, by the way, if you do clinical interventions on all of this, you'll find that sit-ups, once again, they don't make sense. So I, I, I think you, you, you converged on that on, on your own. By the way, I'm enjoying this. You folks are wise. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, uh, since we're kind of just kind of, you know, going down that rabbit hole, um, being a fan of the Green Bay Packers, I, I think one of the greatest defensive ends who ever played was Reggie White. And I can remember in the 90s, he was having, like, back issues. Reggie White, you know, close to 300 pounds, big glutes, big-ass hamstrings, and he was having these back problems. And I, and I read this in a paper. Um, but they were like, you know, he had to do all this extensive abdominal work to compensate for his lower back issues. Is that just kind of like a misconception that if my back, if I'm having like back weakness or maybe excessive soreness where I would consider that maybe a back weak, I need to strengthen my abdominals to kind of balance all that out? Or, or uh, well, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, okay. Well, you know what the first two words are. It depends. <laughs> um, let, let, let me give you four different perspectives on why, let's call it core training, not just the abdominals, but core training in general is non-negotiable um, in terms of both performance and uh, reducing pain. Um, I don't know, I, I never worked with the Green Bay Pack are white and I don't know what his problem was and I don't know what his training program was so I'll start that way however oh, I feel sorry you can, for you already <laughs> yeah if, if, if you can create uh, a girdle around the spine what causes pain in a lot of athletes is micro movements at their spinal joints so there's a bit of laxity around the joint the disc might have lost a bit of height uh, so it's inherently lax but a good strong well-controlled core acts like a girdle to engineer out the micro-movements and take the pain away. So that's the first reason. The second reason is, if I take the spine out of you, if you've signed your organ donor card on your driver's license, we might uh, uh, end up knowing you a little bit better one day. But if we took your spine and put it on a table and put weight on it, it would buckle. Just the lumbar spine, it will buckle at 20 pounds. In other words, your spine can't even hold up your upper body weight without a guy wire system. Well, when you analyze your core with psoas, quadratus, lumborum, the abdominal wall, the extensors, it forms exactly that guy wire system that stiffens it and allows it to bear huge compressive loads without buckling. So that's reason number two. Reason number three is proximal stability underpins distal athleticism. So consider this. Hold your hand up in the air and start wiggling your finger back and forth. You had to stiffen your wrist to allow your finger to wiggle. If you didn't, your hand would flop around. Now move your wrist. You had to stiffen your elbow. Move your elbow. You had to stiffen your shoulder, etc. The mother of all proximal stability is your core. 
that's what stops the energy leaks and allows you to explode out your hips and explode out your shoulders. So again, it's non-negotiable for uh, enhancing athleticism and pain. And number four is if you're in any combative uh, situation at all, whether you're an offensive tackle or you're, you're in a combative sport, you need armor. Otherwise, they will split your your spleen and your your kidneys and everything else. So those are all reasons why um, a a fit core is non-negotiable. But you you use the word strength when you ask the question. And interestingly enough, strength in of itself, so having stronger abdominals or back muscles, is not protective for future back injury. However endurance is and the reason why we think that is and at least we've measured this in athletic groups is those guys and men and women who have more core endurance keep good form longer because think of when you get hurt you get hurt when you break form sure well doc uh, there, there was another observation I noticed uh, and like you know as a offensive tackle offensive lineman a big thing for me running the line was always assessing people and you got, you know, a split few seconds to kind of size people up. And I always noticed that, you know, guys that were big quad, big chest, and were kind of the, all the muscles I could see were usually never going to be as strong as the guy that had all the big ones in the back, like big hamstring, big quads. I mean, a big butt. Um, and the other one which I noticed is that as an offensive lineman, I was always pretty slim in the waist. And the guys that tended to have more back injuries definitely had bigger stomachs. And I remember... Uh, you know, kind of just noticing a guy always complaining his back, and I remember just seeing his gut stick out, and I remember thinking, you know what, like kind of almost like you see old people that all of a sudden develop uh, kyphosis of the upper back from their head pitching forward, that all of a sudden that head, as it pitches forward, the body creates homeostasis and wants to stay in balance, so it creates that kyphosis. I noticed a lot of guys that got real big in the stomach all of a sudden got sway back. And it was almost like the body's natural deal to try to stay within homeostasis and stay within their center of gravity, started kind of pushing themselves out. And I noticed that most of those guys, when I kind of took a look and I was like, so your back hurts, it was kind of like a one-to-one deal. And like, guy would complain about his back. He kind of take a look and I would all of a sudden notice the big stomach on the front and the sway back. And I always wondered if it was, uh, if it was a genetic thing or if one kind of led to the other that all of a sudden their back hurts. So they kind of started pushing their belly out. Or maybe the belly out was just, just putting to like just get their constant. shoulders over their well, hips. Like. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, big posture. I, I, I um, as a, you know, and, and it kind of makes me kind of almost. Some, I might call my mom and thank her, but a big thing my mom was always big on was posture. So as we were kids, she would uh, you get like a, a gut punch if you were ever standing in a bad position, and uh, like going uh, going and looking at these guys, it was just so apparent that like you know it was like a one to one deal. Like oh my back hurts, and I and always take a look, and it was always big gut. And, uh, um, you know, sway back. And so for me, a big thing for me was always trying to just keep my waist smaller and never really get a big stomach because I was always afraid that the big stomach would lead to more back injury. Is that something you've noticed just kind of anatomically, just looking at people in terms of just, uh, just how they're kind of built, if one's kind of like a predis- predisposition for the other? Yeah, yeah. Is, is this John? It is. Yeah, John, boy, you are so – talk about Sherlock. You are so insightful, sir. Um, what what – you've just described is exactly what I would have described. Now, I'm, I'm just going to take it back just a little. Well, you're Canadian. I'm Canadian half. Oh, you so are nice. I'm telling you, I'm half Canadian. so I'm, I... You know the type of stomach that 
um, it protrudes right at the bottom of the pelvis. So it kind of falls down over the front of the thighs. You know that sort yeah. of sagging low belly with no tone? Yeah. Uh, well, interestingly enough, you'll find that that type of um, body type with that really pooped out belly not complain about back issues because they're so stable. They have this huge pneumatic cushion in front of them giving their spine stability. Now that's when they're young and as they get older that kyphotic rounding that you were describing is a perfect character of that type of uh, spine. So you, you are absolutely right on with that. Um, the uh, uh, the guys who, 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 who have, have the, the big belly that you're talking about playing in the NFL, um, it's so interesting that if you go to a Russian strength culture, um, they, in, in the U.S., they would probably want to see you from the front, and yet in Russia, they, they want you to turn around. They want to see your traps your back muscles, your glutes, and your hams, exactly the way you described it. Well, those were the big, I mean, those are the go muscles, uh, you know, and like I, I used to train with some Olympic sprinters when I was down in Tampa, and every one of them, like coming on, like you kind of see them, like, oh, this person's in good shape, and all of a sudden they turn to the side, and you were like, oh, my God, I mean, just massive hamstrings, bit thick, uh, you know, glutes. I mean, a lot of, you know. What the, does the poster say in the? Oh, yeah, backs are, uh. Backs or something. No, no, it's uh, backs are to lifters as biceps are to bodybuilders, yes. I think is the quote goes. But it was just one of those deals. I mean, and then there were kind of, you know, there were always really interesting ones like um, the guys that were slightly bow-legged, slightly pigeon-toed were always much more athletic and much faster than the guys that were knock-kneed and duck-footed. So a big thing that we do in our training is we always teach people to train if they're going to squat and do some form of bilateral hip hinge with their toes straight ahead, you know, shoulder width, good position. Just because I, uh, you know, if you look at change of direction, uh, whether it's force bleed, generating internal hip torque, all these key factors, and for me, everything that we do in our training style has to be replicated, and more importantly, has to have some practical application on the field. And if uh, you know, if you're just literally opening, squatting, duck footed because you want some artificial range of motion to get below parallel, but you don't have the strength and stability to do it with your toes forward, then I shouldn't pick that as an as an arbitrary kind of mark. So for me. Everything that I've developed in this style of training goes back to not only what I saw uh, gave me success on the field, but the, the observations that I made by watching some of the best athletes on the planet compete daily. Oh, John, I should be interviewing you. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <clears throat> what, else we, what else have we got, Denny? Um, well, on the forums, when we, when we put it out there that um, Doc was going to be on the show, they were... Um, they were interested to hear your opinion on the reverse hyper. Uh, some people felt that you had an interesting opinion on that. I don't know if it's a negative or if it's a positive, but I'm kind of curious on what you, how you feel um, like the reverse hyper bench um, could benefit strengthening of that area. So okay, well, you, you know the answer, and, and it depends. Who are we talking about? <laughs> Well, What's their I guess just think history? about like, and is that the, the best tool to, to, to get to their goal? But I, <clears throat> when you say reverse hyper, you mean um, 
that you're you're on a Roman chair and you're extending the back upwards through the hips. Is that what no? Uh, yeah, the uh, the what he's talking about reverse hyper is like the uh, West Side barbell. It's an elevated table where you lay on, you grab, okay, and so then it's there's obviously Simmons's gluten yes. hem machine. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. So I'm glad we we yeah people have different names for all these things. So you're talking about Louis's uh, glute ham machine. Well, look. Um, uh, uh, he, he has produced a tremendous amount of very, very strong lifters. On the other hand, I have also seen a lot of lifters, uh, well, not a lot, I've, I've seen a handful of uh, lifters uh, from that whole operation that uh, it, 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 it probably led to uh, some of their, their problems. So it goes right back to this, it depends. But what we uh, do um, if, if the lifter really wants uh, that machine to have benefit and reduce the risk. Now, Louis will say that the pelvis uh, uh, and the spine bends a little bit as the legs sweep through to uh, vertical at the bottom of the, of the cycle. Right. The, the, the idea is that the, yeah. uh, the pendulum helps it, uh, yeah, help, helps the low back kind of deload, almost with kind of a, a forced piece right. of traction. Right, because it deloads and it milks uh, blood or fluid into the discs or something like that. Yeah, well, yeah. well he this, talks about traction. Yeah, I I don't think it it will uh, do that. I'm sorry. Uh, as long as there's muscle activity there, um, it 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 will not cause traction, and that the small amount of traction. I, uh, I don't, I'm quite sure, make much difference. However, um, having said that, if you can get the athlete not to lay their chest directly on the uh, glute ham table, but they prop themselves up on their elbows, lock their back, and they do it, uh, we, we know, as an athletic post. A post is where you activate latissimus dorsi to glide the whole uh, scapulae and shoulder complex downwards towards the uh, pelvis and really stiffen the back. So you're up on your elbows, locking the back, and that really isolates the motion about the uh, hip joint. And then do not swing through underneath the table very far. So if you can do that, um, uh, I would say, uh, and if you don't have a history of uh, a flexion-based spine disorder, uh, it sounds that we're, we're on the track of, of the benefits outweighing the uh, costs. But for sure, spend a lot of time uh, pulling sleds, pushing sleds uh, as well to develop that, uh, you know, basically you're developing a draft horse. So when you talk about pulling sleds, are you talking about pulling like a, uh, like a toe sled, like putting like a toast, like a, a strap around the waist, kind of ho hooking it to a strength belt, and then like doing like power walking, reverse Yeah, you can do this. You, you can do, and it depends on why we're doing it. Um, it's, that is about the best way that I know of, of balancing up uh, a knee for knee rehab, for example. Mm -hmm. I do exactly what you just described. I think that was John again who yeah. asked that. And you focus as you lean back on extending through the knee, so you get the yeah. full quad involved. And uh, I don't, I can't think of a better uh, knee extensor exercise than that. We try to we, we we try to do that a couple days a week. I mean, on Wednesdays we'll pull it for you know four minutes at a time with like two plates and kind of go back and forth. But actually, Luke and I pulled it yesterday. But uh, yeah. you know, like for us. Um, 
uh, you know, the reverse hyper has actually been, for me personally, is actually the same way I do it. I never was too excited about when guys would lay their chest flat on the bench. And, yeah. then, and then as they got to full extension, they would arch their backs and it became kind of this dynamic movement and to me that never made sense. So for me, like you said, I would prop my elbows up and stay nice and stable in the upper body and then be able to really pull. And the other thing I do is I don't necessarily go that heavy. I mean, I know it might sound heavy, but I go up to probably four or five plates a side, which for me is relatively light. But we'll do it for time anywhere from 30 to 40, 60 seconds at a time, just trying to build endurance. I mean, the idea of doing I, – I, it, it never really made much sense for me to do any trunk or low back or ab stuff for anything core-based that wasn't for an extended period of time where guys are like, oh, I did that for three or four reps. I'm like, I'm not trying to be strong in this. I mean, I, I you know, like what I found is that uh, I got way better uh, within my trunk when I started kind of doing, like you said, more endurance stuff. So that was actually – I, and I, I never really put my finger on it, Doc, and when you said that, I was like, oh, shit, that does make so much sense. Um, so for us, if we, you know, when we do a lot of uh, uh, the stuff in our training, a big part of my deal is, um, you know, we don't do anything dynamic until you can demonstrate stability with an isometric hold. And I actually found that, you know, it's just teaching people basic isometric holds for the for the trunk for some of the, you know, our best uh, low low hanging fruit, and then once they develop that stability through an isometric contraction, then we would start adding in other ones. So I mean, people kind of freak out a little bit, like this isn't necessarily that much fun. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? Training isn't meant to be fun. It's meant to put you in a position so you can go out and kick ass on a, on a given day and have fun. So yeah, beautiful. I uh, uh, had my hip replaced this past summer, and it's. Uh... You know exactly what you just described. You have to humble yourself, go right back, and get the most basic of hip thrusts going. And yep. then I'm just starting to do, and you're going to laugh if you can do four plates aside. I'm on zero plates aside trying to get my uh, on the glute damn machine now, <laughs> trying to restore back a little bit of uh, strength and, uh, and ability. But that's exactly right. Get the core going and then start uh, controlling your hip and building it back. So, Doc, where can people go if they want to find more resources that you provide? Um, are there? Do you have a, a website that you'd like to direct people to? Well, Callie, thank you very much for that. Yeah, it's backfitpro.com, just as it sounds, B-A-C-K-F-I-T-P-R-O.com. Uh, I've written a textbook for clinicians. It's called Low Back Disorders, and it, it, it shows them how to assess a patient. Uh, and then show a patient what is causing their pain and eliminate that, and then how to design a, a program to uh, address the deficits that cause pain. The second book is called Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance, and now we're morphing the program. You've been successful in pain control. Now it's time to build some athleticism, so it, it's, it's a few ideas on that. And uh, my third book will be out this summer. It, it, it's called Back, Mechan uh, Back Mechanic, and it's for the lay public with back pain, and it shows them how to go through a back assessment, uh, a self-assessment, and then start to uh, uh, program some uh, progressions based on the category that they fall into for pain. Well, you certainly are a busy man. Do you do a lot of public speaking individuals? Uh, Somewhere in the world every month have done for 30 years. Wow! Wow. Well, the um, and, and we can buy all the books on your website. I'm gonna as soon as we get off here, I'm gonna yeah purchase all those. I, uh, you know, I, I it's interesting. Your stuff got sent to me probably about five or six years ago, and I think I got online and I actually watched 
uh, a bunch of um, some like YouTube clips and then some lectures. And uh, I always thought it was real heady stuff and was always uh, super impressed. But uh, sadly, I've not purchased your books. So as soon as we get off here, we'll, we'll punch them up and uh, dev definitely dig into some stuff. But uh, no, it's, uh, it, it's always nice to meet people that... Uh, actually have a solid background and actually look at it from a clinical sense like hey this is all the research I've done I've done this over a number of years and these are the you know the ideas that we've pulled out of it and also what's nice is that you've blended your stuff with just some actual observation where you're like hey you want to know what the the information or the the like the uh, results say but like here's some like kind of you know visual things that we've noticed and you know all, all two times we've run into people that are like so stuck within they're almost right. like this dogma of folklore that they can't break outside the, the uh, you know break outside the bonds of it and um, I just appreciate you not being a crazy person and actually like, yeah the like it, the it yeah. depends answer is a 100% viable and like it's a starting point it's a starting point and it's exactly you know when we do seminars there's a there, there are a lot of questions that come up, and, and people want, um, as you know, they want information that's really black and white. Well, they want definitive. They yeah. want something to rely on. They want something to rest their hat on. But uh, with your experience, as, of course, in the field that you have, you know that it, that it truly is dependent on the individual, the training background, the situation, if it's necessary. And it's just kind of music to our ears, I guess. Hey, uh, Doc, did you, uh, were you buddies with Charlie Francis? I wouldn't say buddies. I certainly knew Charlie. We weren't social friends in any way, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I certainly knew Charlie. Okay. Yeah, it was yeah. just you guys kind of in, you know coming from the same kind of area. Just uh, you know. Yeah, there there was a, a wonderful observationalist when he was training Ben Johnson, for example. Um, he used his ears as much as anything else, and as soon yeah. as he heard a, a, a harder footfall with Ben yeah, moving down the track, he. It, Training stopped. You're now yeah. programming and grooving an engram for a slow fatigue pattern. That, mm -hmm. that's yeah, he talked about heavy foot slap being his oh, biggest absolutely. indicator for Ben Johnson. Yeah, whether or not. I think that's just my standard running stuff. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, I mean, it, it's yeah. I mean, if uh, you know, all all these guys as part of their curriculum as coaches have uh, gone through in Texas, especially, and I've gone through, uh, you know. Uh, you know, Speed Trap and all, you know, all of his books. But yeah, the uh, you know, all of his GPP Medball stuff. Um, you know, it was so trunk heavy and so many different planes of motion that I just, you know, thought that maybe you guys had, you know, interacted or been contemporaries at some point. Uh, n n not, not formally, no. Okay. So, Dr. McGill, as we start, to, as we start to kind of wind down the um, the episode, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, talk about, or anything else that is coming up for you in this this year, this summer, that you'd like to our listeners to know about? Are you speaking in our area? What's the other one? Yeah. Uh, not in uh, Los Angeles, uh, uh, or, or uh, I'm in San Chicago? Francisco, but that's at the International Lumbar Spine Meetings. That would bore the hell out of Yuri. <laughs> <laughs> so that's in San Francisco in June. But uh, no, not really. Uh, just uh, the 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 new book for the lay public, I think, will interest a lot of your listeners. Absolutely. Uh, I hope it's an easy question. To answer, but I'm curious if you found in your travels a, a definition for athleticism. Mm. Good, yes, yes, because you do use that term quite a bit. Oh, well, we have a definition, so we can compare. Yeah, you, you, you've nailed me, athleticism. Wow, the ability to uh, move well, achieve the goal of, of whatever the athletic endeavor is, and do it in a way with a low risk of injury. Wow. 
It's it's pretty close. So, Our, ours is uh, what what is it? The it's essentially uh, seamless and effort movement through multiple planes of motion. Yeah, both. Yeah, to uh, achieve a new yeah, and novel ta- new yeah, and novel yeah, task. Yeah, the uh, yeah the ability to move through yeah through space. Yeah, I have to go back and look, but it's basically the uh, you know the ability to move through space in both a you know effortless and easy and easy manner. That's both. Uh, uh, what was it? Effortless and pleasing Seamless. to the eye, and then the ability to pick up new and novel tasks. Mm-hmm. So we found that if you develop athleticism, you should be able to pick things up relatively fast, and it should be uh, aesthetically pleasing. Because whenever I ask people, I'm like, "Do you guys familiar with athleticism?" Everybody says, "Yeah." I'm like, "How do you know?" And they always, you know, and then you kind of paint some Im- imagery, and they all get the look on their eye. I'm like, as soon as you see a great athlete, you see do, watch somebody do something that's athletically uh, pleasing, it's instantly pleasing to the eye, and you guys know. And everyone, and there isn't a single person in the world that, they, even though they might not be able to define it, knows exactly what I'm talking about the minute I describe it that way. They're like, "Oh yeah, 100 percent." And well, you know, you, 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 you know, it's no. so interesting when you watch animals uh, at right. the uh, waterhole in Africa. Mm-hmm. They are watching each other with an eagle eye, and the second one shows uh, a form sl- of weakness, yeah. they're attacked. And, yeah. And uh, I think. Uh, savvy people. I mean, you know, the, every police officer will tell you about the perp walk or, or the, the person who sets themselves up for uh, for uh, weakness and an attack. And uh, sure, we all watch we all watch movement. And uh, yeah, very clever. But whether or not we are willing to admit it is another thing. We we run into people that all the time refuse to admit. What is good movement and what's bad movement? And I'm like, dude, we all know it. We all have this inherent coach's eye, but whether or not you choose to admit it is another thing. Admit and that's it, what, correct uh, it. And, and that's what's been great about this is actually, uh, you know, we run into people that, you know, refuse to believe just, you know, within their senses. And more importantly, like if you, you know, inherently know something when you when you see it. So it's been great. Thanks, Doc. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, this was very educational for me. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Well, you know, I, if I can ref- return uh, that, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're all wonderful. I, I, you're very good at what you do. So thank you very much. Was that in the show template? Was he supposed to say that? Yes, yeah, he was supposed to say that. <laughs> no, no, one buys Stu Mag- no one buys Stu McGill. That was straight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one buys Stu McGill. That, that's, that's brilliant. Well, thank you again. And um, we look forward to talking with you once we sort through all of your books that John's going to buy for us. So. Yeah, for two. Yeah. We're in. Okay, well, best of luck to all of you. If I see you at a meeting somewhere, please come up and uh, well. Now it's time to empower your performance. To get more information, including video demos, research articles, and links to purchase Dr. McGill's books, including Ultimate Back, Fitness, and Performance, visit www.backfitpro.com. Take a look at Dr. McGill's upcoming seminar schedule to catch him in action live in a city near you. And in case you didn't tune into last episode, Wade's Army is going strong with a 30-day campaign all throughout April. Here's a quick word from Tex on how to get involved and how to receive a limited edition Wade's Army t-shirt. What's up, Power Athlete Nation? Throughout the month of April, Wade's Army will be launching a campaign to financially support families in the fight against neuroblastoma. While exciting breakthroughs are being made on the neuroblastoma research front, 
most families begin the fight with the current standard treatment. Treatment is costly, and combining this burden with the emotional toll of the child's fight with cancer is almost too much for a family to fathom. The mission of 30 Days for Wade extends well past awareness or funding research. We are connecting with families that need our help and providing them with financial assistance. For this campaign, we feature the limited edition, cancer-kicking, brand-new Wade's Army uniform, available in all youth and adult sizes, as well as the Wade's Army morale patch for your ruck or cap. Please join the fight against neuroblastoma and help us kapow cancer. You can find out more at wadesarmy.org. Well, that's it for the show. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, just because J.J. Watt is receiving some serious endorsements from Reebok doesn't mean this guy is going to crack. No one buys Stephen Gill. Until next time, bye!